On today's episode, Dave interviews Steve Hofstetter. Steve is the host and executive producer of Laughs on Fox Networks. He has appeared on CBS's Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, E's True Hollywood Story, Showtime's White Boys in the Hood, ESPN's Quite Frankly, and ABC's Barbara Walters Special, among others. He is formerly a weekly columnist for Sports Illustrated and the NHL. His fifth album, Pick Your Battles, reached number one on iTunes Comedy Charts. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. I love the idea of determined, strong, not having doubts, certain, like the artist that we, where you are right now, where you are right now is based upon you going, I'm going to do this. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. Well, no, you, I'm kidding. You, <laughs> that's irony. Uh, yeah. but, but right. So it's that, that feeling of what is it? It's, it's that feeling of, um, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm, this is what I'm going to do. Not, I'm going to do this. How am I going to do this? It's, it's uh, driven by a crippling fear of failure. Is it? Sure. What's your relationship to failure? Do you understand what I mean? Uh, I don't allow it. You don't allow it? I so do when, not allow it. So when it comes in, you go, you, you just think about the next thing that's going to, that you think. I figure out a way to turn the failure into a success. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I had a show on Sirius for two years. Mm-hmm. And as my, uh, as my uh, co-producer said, they promoted it as if it were nuclear launch codes. Uh-huh. Just don't tell anyone this ever. Right. They, <laughs> they never aired commercials, mm-hmm. ever. And, I mean, we had some serious talent on that show. On the first episode, we had Mark Marin, Ted Alexandro, Lisa Lampanelli on the same episode. It was insane. Well, how, and the show was two and, hours? Uh, the show was, it's uh, a great question. I think it was an hour. Were they all in at one time? Yeah, it was a panel show. Fuck. Yeah, it was a panel show. I still have them on, on a CD somewhere. So I say somewhere, like I don't know exactly where they are. You know exactly where uh, they are. Yeah, in I have pocket. them on CD on, 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 on my second, second yeah. shelf from the bottom in the middle. So, uh, and when that got canceled. How long did it run? Uh, it ran two years. Two years. And when that got canceled, I just said, okay, now that opens me up for another opportunity. And so then I found, uh, I started doing this sports short and I decided to self-syndicate and I approached National Lampoon about getting behind it because I was doing some work with them on a book. And, and, you know, so then it wasn't, oh, Steve's show got canceled. It was, oh, Steve left his show to syndicate on Terrestrial. And and that's how you turn a failure into a success. You just find another success. So, but what seemed to me, <laughs> you just find another success. That's it. Because yeah. I think what what so many people do is they see that failure and they live in that for a while. Yeah, I can't. I can't do that. I hate it. I hate I, it too. And I can't have. I can't have idle hands. I mean, this week has been. This week's been a weird one because you made a. You made. You made a table. I did make a table. Is that and, your idle hands not wanting to have? And uh, two, two uh, outdoor couches as well. Um, well, one, and I'm in the middle of the second one. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so this was, I guess, to give the backstory. So my, my father passed away about six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I was a zombie for about six days. Uh, just inconsolable, cried every day. Uh-huh. It was not just sudden, but so he was 72 years old. He was never a healthy guy, but we we didn't know he was sick because there there's a bit of anger toward him and that he kept this from us. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had actually he passed away without us knowing, and then when he wasn't calling me back, I got worried, and then we 
did a welfare check with the cops and i mean this whole terrible mess and he had he had already been dead for a couple of days and he, he lived in, in new york uh yeah in queens in queens so it, it was you know there's part of his anger that he didn't tell us that like he was in poor financial shape and he mm -hmm. was in poor health and just stuff we could have helped and then part of me goes you know what this is not a guy who would have eaten kale right you know this is someone who chose to live his life the way he chose to live it and you know et cetera, et cetera. so there were six days where i was just i was out of my mind and and i've always been very cavalier with death mm -hmm. it's a weird thing to say but what does cavalier mean because i think that i am as well death is a thing that happens that's exactly how i felt yeah about it. yeah when someone tells me that someone died i'm just like oh that's sad that that story's over did you hear what i said when you said your father died uh i guess i didn't say nothing anything. yeah right so for me i'm going okay yeah, like this is a thing that happened. This yeah. is a thing that happened. I didn't even realize how much of a gut punch it was because a, a very close friend of mine lost his father about two months before I did. And I called to apologize to him what happened to me because I realized, oh, this is this is a big deal. Like I, I never realized how serious this was. Mm -hmm. So suddenly I'm not me for six days and then day seven comes and I have to get back to uh, working on my show. And we find out we get extended for four episodes, and I've just been throwing myself into work. The show is called? Uh, Laughs. On so it's Fox. on Fox. Right. Uh, yeah, it's airing at least another three weeks. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's going to happen after that. Mm -hmm. um, we await the ratings to see if we get the full order after that. It's enormous, because then not only is that the another nine episodes, but then it goes into syndication, and there's season two, and then there's all kinds of other stuff that happens. So, I want to take a little side, sure. side thing here. I remember when Fox was doing a show. I was in Second City, and yeah. we would walk back, watch backstage. They had one of the first successful stand-up shows back then, Comic Strip Live, yeah. which is what made me want to be a comic. Absolutely, you had you know uh, uh, the people that came from that show. Yeah, it was really well produced. It 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 was it was the show that, but it also happened during the '80s when comedy was hot. And I think that that was one of the main things that made that made fucking stand up explode. There hasn't been stand up on network television in its pure form. Like Last Comic Standing exists, but that's you know people in a house and they're competing and right. you know it's the a, reality show stuff. Yeah. Uh, there are producers in their ear whispering, telling them what to say. Yeah. Um, the, the there was a couple seasons where it was completely fixed. I mean, there's stand up in a club. Right. Has not been on network television since Comic Strip Live, right. and it's so full circle because not only was it the network that aired it is the same one, Fox. but it's yeah, but it's also it was at the Laugh Factory, which we've done some tapings at the Laugh Factory, and I'm a regular there now because of the show. Like right. that's kind of how they heard about me, and so it's a very like this this was everything coming full circle. For right, me. right, yeah. What a great thing that is. You look at your life, or one looks at their life yeah. and says, "I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to be a participant in what it is that, that I'm doing. I am going to do what it is that I'm going to be doing." And nine times out of ten, you come back to, or you realize a dream that you had, which I would assume yeah. that that's exactly what happened to you. It is. It, it was the first thing that made me conscious of what stand-up comedy really was. Right. I mean, I was, I was raised on, you know, records. Of it's kind of funny to think of the two. I was raised on uh, Bill Dana, Jose Jimenez. Yeah, yeah, many of Jose Jimenez. Yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, which was Ed Sullivan. Yeah, right, and and also uh, horrifically racist, but they didn't know it at the time. And right. also uh, Bill Cosby, who now has his own problems. 
Boy, so, does he, man? Yeah. What do? You, what's your? Because a friend of mine went to see Cosby in yeah. Chicago and said, "Boy, he still got it," and that was all he said. And I'm thinking, I don't know. I don't know how I. I don't know how I do that. I don't know how I look at him and not. I, I couldn't. There is, as someone who's a big sports fan, I've always believed. Where there's smoke, there isn't necessarily fire. Where there's too much smoke for you to inhale, there's fire. Right. And so there have been plenty of situations as a sports fan where I've seen athletes get wrongfully accused of something. Right. And you really have to find out all the facts before come, before you make a decision. Right. But case after case after case after case and all this stuff being swept under the rug, there's enough where you just go, all right, best case scenario he did something horrific. Right. <laughs> Worst case scenario, right. he did something incomprehensible. Right. It's interesting that you say it's swept under the rug because a friend of mine, Laura Kraft, who was on, uh, who's a who does uh, who's a staff writer comedy, um, she worked for him and on the Cosby Show, I think. Mm -hmm. And she said his Manhattan apartment, he had all the floors removed and he had the floors replaced with leather floors. That's weird. Leather fucking floors. Leather floors. It's hard to sweep shit under the rug. If you have leather floors. Leather floors. But he had leather floors. It's hard to get stains out if you have leather floors. Leather right? floors. Yeah. It, right. It's hard to get, yeah. Yeah. Regret stains out yeah. and awful stains. Yeah. But, yeah. No, uh, but then again, you go back to his work and you go, there is a body of work that has inspired so many people. And if there are, I'm going to be nice about it. If you want to yeah. call them peccadillos, you go, well, those are peccadillos. But he, it I was, don't do that though. I don't do that. I don't, you don't do separate. What? I don't separate the work from the man ever. I don't. Um, you know, Ray Rice is a monster. Right. Doesn't matter how good he is at football. Right. Uh, Ray Lewis, who best case scenario watched two people murdered and kept quiet about it. Yes. That's best case scenario. Right. You know, worst case scenario, he had a little part in the stabby stabby. Right. And suddenly he finds Jesus, and suddenly. And he wins Defender of the Year that year, and just, I, I mean, there, I don't, I, I can't go. Well, Michael Jackson's music was great. Uh -huh. I can't do that. Some people can do that. I don't know. Uh, but then, but aren't there people though that you do forgive that in a certain way? Because, because for me, I look at someone like let's I, play the game. Name someone. Okay. Well, I'm going to name. I'm going to say uh, it wasn't. It wasn't a crime. But um, uh, Miles Davis was a notorious fucking douchebag. And his music is phenomenal. I there's a difference I think between forgiving someone for being an asshole, but even something like that, like I, I love CCR, uh huh, and I think they're I think they're wonderful. Right. Every time I heard a John Fogerty interview, I would like them less. Yes, he's an asshole to the point where when I was at Sirius, mm -hmm. he was there one day being being interviewed. This is someone who I I grew up listening to. Right. Who Musically, I idolized, and suddenly I'm realizing he's such a dick. And then he walks by me in the hall. We are by ourselves. It's the perfect moment for me to go, hey, nice to meet you. I enjoy your stuff. It's not going up to someone at a restaurant. It's not, and what I walked right by. Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. now he doesn't have the same story. He's not telling the story about the day the redhead he had never heard of walked by him. <laughs> but... The point, the point is that, like, it still colors the picture for me. I totally understand that. I totally understand that. I get that. I get that. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. And yet, 
Not in yet. I go back to Cosby and I just think he taught me how to tell a story. He taught me how to tell a story. And it doesn't take away that yeah. education that I have. But I look at him now and I can't look at him now. Well, that's my point. The, the whole like you can't, you can't look at it the same. You absolutely cannot look at it the same. And I mean the crux of the Hannibal Burris bit that put this into light was, you know, him talking about how Cosby will lecture people about what's right. And that to me makes the whole thing so much worse. I got it. I got it. And and, and you just reminded me of, you know, conversations that I don't know if they're apocryphal, if they really happen, where he had conversations with um, Eddie Murphy and said, you know what, if you just calm it all down, you'd be a lot more successful. Yeah. If you wouldn't be as, uh, use those words or that language, you know, yeah. you'd be more successful at that. And all the time going, you're a monster underneath what you're well, telling me. Do you me. know the story of Vince Champ? I don't know who Vince Champ is. Vince Champ was a comedian who, it, it always, Vince Champ comes up a lot when people talk about how like, a comedian being dirty on stage might mean they're dirty off stage. Okay. Because Vince Champ was as clean as clean could be. Mm -hmm. And he was on the college circuit a lot. And I think he may have won Star Search. He, he was doing very, very well. Mm -hmm. And suddenly they figure out that all these rapes that are happening on campuses across the country are linked to his schedule. And he is now in prison and has been for many years. And he was a super clean comic who was busy raping 19-year-olds across the country. Mm -hmm. And so when, I don't know if you saw, it was the, the worst piece of television I've ever seen. There was a Law & Order episode about a quote-unquote rape joke comic. I didn't see it. It was the most poorly written. First uh -huh. of all, the idea that there is a rape joke comic uh -huh. is no one that one note is that successful right. ever. Second of all, if you're going to write a comedian... Give him jokes. Yes. Like, the, the character, they showed five minutes of his stand-up mm -hmm. without a single punchline. Without a single, like, I just wanted to be like, are you, who's writing this garbage? This is terrible. And it was such a very, like, well, he's telling rape jokes. And turns out, he's the rapist. And it was just so trite and stupid and... Sounds like the worst Law & Order ever. It was. It was the SVU, which is usually better, but I uh -huh. think this season is... I think this season, they're just they're just punking us. I don't... I, for me, I look at what's going on for most of that, and I go, how does, how does the show keep going on? How does it keep going on? I just wonder, like, for me, okay, I get you run out of plots, but you shouldn't run out of talent. <laughs> right. Like, there's, there's still plenty of talent. But when you got... You have... Uh, what, what is it? NCIS... C N C S N and Y, where it's like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young are solving crimes. Yeah, you go maybe something. Maybe you. They hit should the be in end. Ohio. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Solving four crimes. There's four dead in Ohio. Yeah, what we that would be an amazing. Them? And it just comes out every time. <laughs> like the cops did it. It was the cops or the National Guard. It's the National Guard that did yeah, it every but, time. But going so so. Oh, what brought us? We, we it came to it, we the it, table. Yeah. I was talking about the table. But also, we were talking about your dad before that, going yeah. away, like saying all that, but talking about the table. We, we go off on a lot of tangents here. But, but Well, the idle hands. I can idle get back hands. to that. I love it. Good so, for you. So the idle hands. Uh, so I just got kind of compulsed this week while, you know, waiting to hear if we're renewed, while, uh, you know, suddenly the grief is setting in again. Mm -hmm. And I decided to try to make a table. 
because my dad was always really handy and I've always wanted to do this and I've I've you know I I own some comedy clubs and I've built some stuff but nothing really like this and at the club that we owned in New York my dad helped build it from the ground up and I helped him build tables there but like I held the flashlight and I put the polyurethane on I you know nothing right. that actually requires a lot of skill yeah, the, and, the holding of the and the measuring of the thing exactly my dad is an electrician so there was a lot of holding and measuring and yeah. go get your tool go get my wrench yeah exactly and then yeah. you watch someone talented do something <laughs> So was your dad a craftsman? I uh, not by trade. He uh -huh. just knew how to do this stuff. My right. grandfather was actually an electrician. Uh-huh. And actually both of my grandfathers were electricians and union? So yeah. Uh -huh. Um they lived IBW, they both yeah. separately lived in Electchester, which was the community in New York for the electricians union. Wow. It was called Electchester because there's no creativity in electrical <laughs> right. work. They're going to, to we're just going to smash those yeah. two words together. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So the anyway, I, I decided I'm going to try to build this thing because we had just finished redoing our yard. We bought a house that needed a lot of work. Mm -hmm. The people who owned it before us had the worst taste of, oh, we get so mad at them every day. Every time we find something, we're just like, why would you do? It's just as inexpensive to do it. Not as shittily. So uh, every shelf was put up with two different screws and mm -hmm. a nail. Mm -hmm. It was just, I was just like, why would you, how is this, how is this house not burnt down? Right. And so, uh, we, we just finished the yard and we needed a picnic table and there was some leftover fence wood. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna try to make this table. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I just got obsessed with it and driven and was just working on it all day. Mm -hmm. And then we were going to buy these like outdoor kind of couch things. Uh, and I was like, no, I bet I can build one. And I saw someone on Craigslist who had this like thing they were selling. And I looked at the wood. And I was like, and I'm sitting here never having done this before. The, the ego on me going, I can improve that design. And I did. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it, it's, it goes back to what you started with, which was just the belief you can do it. Right. There's, there's a phrase that I find myself using I travel a lot I travel like yeah. this year I will be going 70,000 miles across the, I've, I've been all over the world this year it's great and this frequent is what I find flyer program what's that who are you with what, what do you mean uh frequent flyer or oh, American Airlines platinum okay yeah I'm uh I'm diamond on delta you diamond it changes delta. your life changes it does, your life change your life and then the minute you get platinum you're like I hope I get it next year yeah you start like getting union uh health insurance you go I made it this year I made it last year yeah. but I just got I just got so what happened the other day we had to change flights we had to change the planes we we're on one plane I'm going to New York and doing some work in New York yeah. we're getting on one plane they have to get us off that plane the toilet they can't get the toilet to fix so we're at the gate we get on another plane I come I get back on the new plane um I get a ding that says I got mail uh, American Airlines throws 5,000 frequent flyer miles into my account saying we're so sorry. And yeah. I think it's because of that. That's um, great. Yeah. But the idea of this, so it's the idea of this, this phrase I found myself saying over and over and over again this year, I can do this. Whatever it was, I can do this. And it's everything from I can figure out how to make that meal in that kitchen over there to yeah. I can poop on the airplane. Which is the worst fucking thing. You know where you go and go, yeah. I can do this. That I've never had a problem. I, I can do this. I can do they, I figure those airlines shit on me so much, I might as well shit on them. <laughs> but it's the idea of pooping on the airplane. It's yeah. a really hard thing to do. Well, the, the idea of, you know, for me, it's not even about taking the moment of saying, I can do this. Mm -hmm. It's not even a conscious thing. It's, it's just, I believe that 
you know, I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And if it's something that I have no interest in, I can't do it because I'm not interested in it. Right. If it's something that I have an interest in, I know I can learn it. I, I, the I can do it isn't me convincing myself. Yeah. It, it's me saying, I can do this. Yeah. It's, it's just going, I'm going to do this. It's okay, so it's not I'm like gonna... a daily affirmation? No, like I don't. A... No, there are, there are no daily affirmations. <laughs> it's like, you're good, David. You're good. I went yeah. to somebody's house the other day, and in their bathroom, their daughter – uh, their daughter had a post-it note saying, you have integrity. You are a good person. You're really yeah. beautiful. And it's like, those are the things that you need. Great. I'm not at that point anymore. I think if you need to remind yourself that you have integrity, then you don't have integrity. But, right, right, right. But if you're working on it, putting a post-it note isn't necessarily going to give you integrity. Right. And what it's going to give you is the Unless thought- Unless you promise someone that you would put that post-it note up. <laughs> exactly. Don't disappoint Diane. Yeah. That's my new name for people these days is Diane. I think it's a really good name. That is a good, that's a good comedy name. It's a good comedy name. I actually hate, Steve is such a go-to comedy name uh-huh. that uh, like 10 years ago, I realized, wow, a lot of comics are using this as, as, as like a punchline name. And I started writing down. I was like, oh, I wonder, I'll just keep a list of all. And I got to 20 in less than a week. No. And I was just like, damn. 20 stand-ups you, Steve? In less than a week. Well, you know, doing spots around town, show, yeah. showcase spots. So there are 10 comics on a show. So really, I mean, when you think about it, that's only 10% of the people I saw. But still, <laughs> it was just, it's insane. The reason why it's such a great name, and Diane has the same quality to it, is that it's a name where everybody has met someone of that name. You probably know someone of that name. But you don't have an instant association with it, and it's not too common. Right. Everyone knows it, but it's not overused. Right. So in that sense, perfect comedy name. I think uh, I remember being at Second City and I had two characters. Uh, I remember it was a main stage show. I had two characters, both named Carl. Somehow it was Carl. Carl's but, a good name, but yeah. It, but that, I think Carl was a 90s improv, a 90s sketch name. I think uh, Simpsons made it too popular. Well, for me, I just want to say the two yeah. characters named Carl were very different. One was C and one was K. Oh, was completely different. Very, very Carl different. Carl with a K is clearly German. Very German. German descent. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Carl with a C might be, I don't know, might Lithuanian. I'd say, I, I was thinking he's like Midwest guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. Carl in the Midwest, you go, he's Nazi. He's a Nazi. Scratch the surface, you're going to see he's yeah. like a Nazi. Yeah. Uh, these My days, wife, by the way, went to school with someone who was from Argentina who was blonde, whose last name was Schrader. Who do you think she descended from? <laughs> Yeah, white blonde girl from Argentina named oh, Schrader. Oh no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I, it's oh, you were you went to Colombia. I did. And uh, uh, how? What did you get a degree in? Uh, graduation. Um, in uh, in you American got, history. Uh huh. Um, Colombia has the unfortunate problem of. They want us to be so well-rounded that they don't actually teach us anything. It's interesting because when I read your bio, it basically – maybe it was something that was there, like general studies. It had the word – Well, general studies is the school Got within it. Columbia. Got it. So there are, there are four different schools under the uh, – there's the engineering school. Mm-hmm. There's Columbia College, which is where most people go. Right. There's Barnard, which is the formerly all-girls school that is now part of Columbia. And then there, well, I guess it's still an all-girls school, but it's part of Columbia. So if you go to Barnard, you're, it doesn't yeah. matter. Um, 
like I took Barnard classes and because uh, I took history, which they said was for girls. And uh, history for girls. No, that sounds. Really. That does it sound was, like a. That sounds like a, um, a class that you can the take. The manly classes, yeah. the engineering classes, yeah. were the yeah. yeah. Yeah, history for girls is like, oh man, I'm not gonna they, be late. I'm gonna be late for my history for girls class. Yeah, they had <laughs> be two decades late. They had a uh, uh, no. They just had a better history department. Uh-huh. Uh, so I took classes over there, and then there's general studies, which is usually for people who took like a year off or something in between. I was a uh, dual degree at first at the Jewish Theological Seminary mm-hmm. and at General Studies. Uh, and then I left JTS to just go General Studies because I realized it. They would always tell us about how like they were integrated in the Columbia community and you could mm-hmm. do the joint program and be integrated in the Columbia community. And then I was in the waiting room of like the assistant dean's office and I heard her talking to a prospective student, and the prospective student asked that question, which everyone asks, like, can you be a regular Columbia student while you're in this program? She goes, well, sure. We have, you know, someone who's, you know, the, who's active in his fraternity, and, and we have someone who writes for the newspaper. We have someone who's, who sportscasts for the radio station. We have, she goes through this whole thing, and I go, everyone, that's all me. I'm that guy. Right. Like right. I'm the right. only, so I'm the only one. I'm on your fucking brochure. Like I don't, and so I realized I would be better off to not be trying to stretch from there, but to actually be where I fit in. Did you want to be a rabbi? Not at all. I wanted them to pay for me to go to Columbia. Got it. Got it. Got yeah. it. Got it. Got it. i I actually the other the thing that really dis, disenchanted me was I remember we were taking a Bible class mm-hmm. and when you're at JTS, yes, and uh-huh. they're they're teaching us the theory of the chronicler as the person who wrote the Bible and you know the Torah and et cetera, et cetera. And so we're going through this whole thing, and the teacher says, "Why would the chronicler have included this passage at this time?" And I raised my hand and I said, "Can we explore the idea that perhaps God wanted him to?" And so she said, well, no, that's not what this class is about. And I said, well, it's what every other one of our classes is about. So which one are we supposed to go to? Right. And I, you know, I said, I'm not saying either one's right. I'm just saying they can't both be. Right. So either teach us something or don't, but don't teach us two things that disagree with each other and just go, you, you assholes figure it out. But isn't it also, or the third thing is, teach it that there, teach it so that I can somehow meld those two things as well. Yeah, or I can use my own interpretation to, you know, figure out what I believe. But it was just a very like, believe this, believe this, believe this, believe this, and then you go to the next class. They go, don't believe this, don't believe this, don't believe this, don't believe this. Right. I'm like, one of you is an asshole. Right. Right. <laughs> I right. don't know which one. Right. Right. Um, I because I went to I went to Hebrew school for a number of years and I was, I assume you're Jewish. Yes. Okay. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I went there just because like I like the Jewish ladies. They yeah. And they take it. Um, <laughs> they really take. They know how to take it. Uh, they know how to take it. <laughs> so it was That's a stereotype I've never heard before. <laughs> they know how to take it. I'm just inventing it as I go. Uh, but. <laughs> uh, but I, uh, for me, what I loved about, because I'm re- uh, being reformed, what yeah. I love about that was it taught me critical thinking. It taught yeah. me to question things. There was a teacher that I had that in one class, we were 15, came to the board, wrote on the board, why, why, am, why are you here? And he just wrote it on the board. He says, I don't mean in this room. I just mean, why are you here? He wrote that on the board, and then we went on to something else. He erased it, and it stood in my mind like uh, as the greatest lesson I've ever had. Never talked about it. And I love that idea of, here you go. You decide what it is that yeah. is the answer to that. 
it's it's crazy that I went to JTS for two and a half years and was a good student, by the way. Um, it's crazy because I'm practically atheist now. Okay. And I'm also like, my wife and I are like the poster children for, uh, not children, but the poster couple for J-Date. We were on their billboard in Times Square. Mm-hmm. That's how we met. We're in their commercial. And so to me, Judaism is important. I, you know, I... I love the spirituality it taught me. I love the community it taught me. I love the ethics it taught me. Not morals, because I think morals are societally imposed. Ethics are what you impose upon yourself. And I love all that. But at the same time, every time I meet someone religious, I'm just like, I'm not you. I'm not you. What does that mean? Like going through what happened with my father. Right. Okay. So I'm assuming he was not. Re- your, your folks were divorced. Is that what my happened? folks were divorced? Uh-huh. Uh, still are. Um, now, it, now there's no chance. Certainly, I got some news. Yeah, they're not going to get. There actually was just as little chance of reconciliation before my father died as there is now. <laughs> so my my parents are, you know, somewhat religious. I mean, my my mother is fairly uh, observant conservative. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father. Is you know off off and on depending on what you know mainly for his kids. Um, my brother and sister, uh, or brother and one of my sisters, are both Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and so they we clash a little bit, and we clashed especially because of the funeral. And I was like, look, there are battles I'm not going to pick. But the thing that just angered me so much. So uh, my father's rabbi is female. Mm-hmm. And to the Orthodox, that's not okay. Right. So my brother brought his rabbi, because it was, you know, B-Y-O-R. So he brought his own rabbi, which is okay. It made him comfortable. Did you know that? That's okay. Did you we know knew that? that. Got it. And I had actually talked to my other sister, and I was like, we're not going to fight them on this. Makes them comfortable. That's fine. What made me uncomfortable, though, is so there's that tradition where, you know, when someone dies in a Jewish household, you're supposed to rip a piece of fabric. Yes. And it has become customary, because we're not living in 13th century Europe anymore, to rip a ribbon and then in pin simil- and pin it. Yeah. So uh, my brother apparently knew he was going to go whole hog. He wore a 20-year-old suit he was going to get rid of anyway. He wore a shitty shirt. Um, I dressed to my father's funeral with respect and dressed as nicely as I could in the one suit that I own. And... Flew from California, so it's not like I can go home and change. I have to be dressed the rest of the day in this. I have to, you know, go to the cemetery and go to my brother's house afterward. So my brother rips his suit, rips his shirt. The rabbi comes over to me and says, you know, okay, it's, you know, it's time to rip your shirt. And I go, uh, you know, and I thought quick. And I go, well, I'm going to rip my tie. I figure this tie is fine. I can, out of respect, I don't want to bother other people here. I don't want, you know, and I go, I'll rip the tie. He goes, you should really rip the shirt. And I go, I understand the custom. I was unprepared for this. This, by the way, is two feet from my father's casket. And I'm just sitting there be like, you man of God, you holy person, you son of a bitch. And he, and he keeps pressing me. And finally, I go, rip the tie. And so he does. And then he starts, you know, uh, saying the, to the... I guess, uh, to the non-Jews, the blessing, the bracha. Right. Um, now, I've got two and a half years of seminary education, mm-hmm. which is more so than most observant Jews. Mm-hmm. And he 
not to mention Jewish camp and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, yeah. he starts, you know, doing like the repeat after me and he starts saying the bracha and he says Baruch and I'm waiting for him to say the next couple of words because it, you don't just say one. No. Even if I was, even if I couldn't speak English and had never on, and w- didn't understand what was going on, and, you know, I still would be able to repeat more than one word right. in a foreign right. language. Right. And so I don't say anything. And then he just goes, uh, do you not want to say the prayer? And I said, no, I just didn't realize you had stopped. If you can continue, we can do this. And it just frustrated me so much that, and my wife and I have had this conversation about a lot of people, and this is what I mean when I say I'm not them. A lot of people who are very religious think that other people aren't religious out of ignorance. Right. If you simply knew, well, then you would choose this life. And I'm sitting there going, I know so much more than you, and that is exactly why I haven't chosen this life. And the arrogance of, of you're just dumb. Right. If you were smart, you'd know how right I was. Right. And part of the reason my oldest sister and I don't get along so well is we both have this tremendous need to be right all the time. And she, like for me, I research things before I speak about them in order to be right all the time. (laughs) For her, she surrounds herself with people who have the same opinion as her in order for her to be right all the time. Got it. She doesn't care if she's right in a larger sense. She cares if she's told she's right. Yes. Yes. So it's a poll. She's taking a poll. Are you right? Yes. Yes. And then she's like, the poll says I'm right. Exactly. We asked eight other people with this same dumb opinion. (laughs) It's like watching Family Feud. You're not guessing what's right. You're guessing what a hundred idiots in a mall said. Exactly. Right. Right. And they and 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 people base a religion upon that. Which and and I get it. I I totally get it. And and I'm for me, I'm more spiritual than I am. And I I'm with you a hundred percent of the way. I also went to to uh, overnight camp or sleepover camp, uh, Jewish sleepover camp in in the Midwest. And uh, for me, I feel like there's such doctrine that people are holding on to that don't question what it is that they're doing. I just do it because it's an echo of 2,500 years of echo, and they're just responding to that. I spent, you're exactly right, echo is the word for it. I I spend my whole life, and that's what my act is, about questioning things we're supposed to accept. Mm -hmm. It's it's something where I got into trouble in college with it because the column I had for the paper was a humor column for the college pa- the for column, the college yeah. paper yeah, yeah. Um, and so I wrote one there was one column where I took uh, two things that were sacred cows and it was uh, Columbia Community Outreach which was this program that was started as a way of like get all the students to go out and spend a day in the community helping rebuild things and planting trees and I mean it was wonderful and then it became something where the first half of the day is spent listening to speeches about how wonderful we are for what listening to speeches were shit and then the other one was take back the night which you know how do you criticize that well I went on the march as a journalist one year and because I was a guy it's, it's a woman thing about yeah, you know women ta- take yeah back, take back the yeah. night is yeah for those yeah. unfamiliar is it's a national movement maybe international that is a very like it's a women it's a woman's march done at night and it's a we don't have to be afraid anymore a wonderful idea great in theory terrible in practice like communism mm-hmm. and because I was on this march and here I am supporting it here I am being a friendly you know, which any oppressed group needs 
you're never going to be unoppressed if you're the only ones who think you are. Right. You know? Oh, yeah. Right. Black people didn't get civil rights because black people wanted civil rights. It's because enough white people said, we're assholes. We have to fix this. This is the way I feel about gun control. Like anybody like me who says, we've got to have gun control, who doesn't have a gun at all, I could be screaming into the night, I've got to have gun control. But Correct. we need people who have guns to go, you know what? It has gotten, it has gotten crazy. Right. And so it's about, hey, gun owners, what is it that you guys are doing to this? Exactly right. And while I was on that march, I was yelled at for being a rapist uh, probably eight times. And simply because I'm a guy. And it was just one of these things where I was, I was sitting there going, no, stop it. And I know it's the vocal minority, but when the vocal minority goes unchecked, it becomes a problem of the organization. And so, you know, I wrote these two columns and I got so much shit. But enough people said to me, thank you for saying something. Right. That it made me realize that, like, I shouldn't just let this stuff ruminate around in my head. And so my act has become about it. And my whole life is really about, you know, don't accept shit just because you're told to. Man. Accept it because it's right. And, and while you're at it, please check out another opinion about it. Yes. And, and I believe that we live in a time where, A, it's, easy, it's so easy to find out what else is going on. Yeah. Whether it's fact or whether it's truth or whether it's opinion or whether it's history, it fucking doesn't matter. We can do all that. And it's also the time where people are the most ignorant and holding on to shit and not going, you know what? I'm not here to be right. I'm here to move through my life and to see where it's going to take me. It's, we, we read headlines. Right. And we don't explore. Mm -hmm. um, and we take the first source as gospel. Yes. So the, you know, I bet right now, for those of you listening, right now you can go on the internet and Google and find out that the best way to cook a Thanksgiving turkey is on a barbecue, mm -hmm. which is completely unsafe and probably tastes shitty. I, I, wait, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. I have made 12, swear to God, yeah. 12 turkeys on a barbecue well my point is it's a way yes but the i have the delicious yeah right yeah i if if you can do it great yes there's a way to do it what yeah. you got to do you just can't put it on the barbecue exactly right this is which is true for anything really right at the very least put it on a rack over the coals <laughs> yes. so yes. so you're saying that right now you can google yes. yeah and there will be plenty of people who will tell you up down and sideways i am an expert and this is the way to do it mm -hmm. and then you will have Another, just as many people say it's the worst idea ever, don't ever do it, that's how fires start and blah, blah, blah. Right. So the point is, you know, and as a comic, like you have to realize, and I mean as any entertainer, you have to realize if you take a stand, someone will disagree with you. If I say I love a sunny day, someone will like the rain. Right. If I say my dogs are the best, someone will say I prefer cats. Mm -hmm. And so if no one disagrees with you, that means you're not saying anything. And when you... So how often do you do the ask me any question? Any, pretty much any time I'm headlining. Mm -hmm. um, so if I'm doing like a showcase show in LA, I don't go into the crowd. Because it's not my show and right. I don't want to change the vibe for the person coming up next. Got it. I don't want to teach the crowd that they're allowed to talk to us. Right. I do it at the end of a show, mm -hmm. and I when do you're it, headlining, yeah, when I'm when it's my show, mm -hmm. and so whenever I'm out on the road, you know, I'll do it, and it's there are a couple of reasons behind it. One, I mean, it's fun for me; right. it's a challenge; it's a workout. Two, it personalizes the show. 
no two shows are ever the same. It makes it about so much more often someone will hear something I I did and respond to, you know, listen to a podcast or, you know, or watch my show or whatever it is. And they'll say, hey, you know, I saw your show in Chicago and there was that woman who talked to you about her umbrella and, you know, and that's what they remember. And I'm like, remember that like 45 minutes I did of like fierce political commentary? Do you remember any of that? No, no, that woman with her umbrella. <laughs> so I know, I know that people respond to it right. and, I, you know, I know that they like it. Mm-hmm. It also, for me, it makes me different. Yes. It's something where uh, a, someone can go to the average comedy club and they can see someone kill it with material for an hour. And they can see that on any given day right? and any given show. Mm-hmm. But when they say to someone, I saw a guy fly without a net, that's when, that's when they go, how the fuck did he do that? But you didn't go into it thinking, I'm going to do this to make me stand out. You went into doing it thinking, I'm going to do this because I want to do this. Well, yes and no. I mean, the first time I did it, certainly. But the first time I did it, actually, it was a marketing thing. So the first time I did it was people would always come up to me on a Thursday night and be like, hey, this is great. I'm going to come see you again this week. And I'm like, yeah, it's the same shit. You're going to see the same show. I'm working on an hour right now. And so I got the idea when I was in Louisville to do a, an ad lib show on Sunday. The Sunday shows were always like 15 people. Right. And so I asked the owner, I go, hey, can I give out tickets to people who've already come see a show? And I say, here are tickets for Sunday night. You can bring up to four people. It's 100% different. I made the openers do it, do it too. And I was like, you know, I improv a lot. Let me try to do it on a whole show. And it became the most popular show I did. Mm-hmm. It became every year I would go back to Louisville, it would sell out before the Saturday night. Ah. And one of my albums is one of those shows. Uh-huh, it was right. just one of these like perfect storm, 250 people in 240 seats, you know, just this kind of just wonderful energy and comedy gods smiling down. Like there were a couple of moments where I'm like, I'm hitting a wall a little bit and then suddenly someone hands me something. Right. And there's another 12 minutes and... There was a lot to talk about because it was right before the 2008 election. So there's tons to talk about there. and Especially it, if you've got the material underneath it, which is your source material. But I'm not allowed, I wasn't allowed to use it. I mean, that was the key with that. No, 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 no. I'm not yeah. talking about your old, your old routine. I'm talking yeah. about your, your education on American history, your education yes. on the political process, like all that stuff. Yes. So you can source that shit out sort of like the way that, that Eddie Izzard would do it, but that's written. Oh, but, he's my favorite comic. Yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. surprised because when you said American history, I'm like, that, that has to be the guy. Yeah. But, uh, but, but you had, it wasn't like you're flying by the seat of the pant, your pants. You're going, this 2008 election, God, that's great. Because you do get to use the political process. Yeah, that's I, I was able to. I already had a lot of the thoughts I wanted to say. I just hadn't said them yet. And that's so interesting. Wait, let me think. Uh, let me just say that you already had the thoughts you wanted to say. You just hadn't said them yet. Yeah, that is exactly what we all do. Where especially if you're writing material, you're going. That makes sense. I can't use it now. I'm going to find a time to use it. Yeah, and and hopefully it will come up. Yes, but to have faith that it's going to come up because nobody likes to see a joke where you go, where the fuck did that come in? You're shoving that in there because you had an idea as opposed yeah. to something organic where you go, that's that. I don't know if you thought about that before, but it doesn't matter because it, ma- it, it ma- matches. Exactly. It strengthens this point. Exactly. Um, yeah, so I would do those shows and it became a thing that I would do every Sunday whenever I was at a club that had a Sunday show. Mm-hmm. I would do it to try to save the Sunday. And in fact... Uh, to I mean, save the Sunday... 
And the Sundays are always light. Oh, I see. To say Sundays to, are always I get, I get light. You. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So the and it also you know allowed me to develop real fans because if people come and see you twice in one week, you know, and they have a good time both times, then you're their guy. See, and that's something that that ah, oh, that's really that's obviously the smart, but the smart, it's really smart because people. I think that there are people who go, oh, I'm going to go see him again, and they're disappointed that they saw the same show twice because I don't think that they really understand how writing works. Yes, it takes time. Yes. Um, so I actually did it in Edmonton once, mm -hmm. and there was a comic who was, like, begging to go on the show. There was someone else who had a guest spot already, and he was like, oh, I really want to do the show, I want to do the show. And I go, hey, man, the rules are you can't do your material. You have to do things that you've never said on stage before, not once. And he still begged, and the other guy was a little uncomfortable with it. So we go, okay. So we gave him a five-minute guest spot. He was off there in three minutes because he he didn't even think to go to the crowd. And so he was just like, so what else? And he was just trying to formulate jokes with no prompts, nothing no. at all. And he was just bombing horrifically. And, I mean, to know that you have to get off stage in three minutes means you really imagine what the first two had a bit. So... Uh, it's something that not everyone can do, right? but the more you do it, the better you get at it. And it's something that I recommend to any comic, any comic listening to this right now. And here's the trick. Don't just go up and ad lib. Nope. Set the table for yourself. Yes. At the beginning of the show, you know, like I would tell people, and first of all, people were coming to the show because it was ad lib, right. but I would tell people that the speech I always gave, and don't ever give this speech, I, I will kill you. <laughs> but the speech I would always give is I would say, this is the ad lib show. That means we're, this, all this stuff is going to come off the top of our heads. You're going to watch painters paint. Right. And it might be a miracle and it might be a train wreck. Right. But we're going to find out together. Right. And are you cool with that? And then everybody cheers. And it's a little psychology of like, here's right. how it's going to unfold. The same way that like, I've been to a couple improv shows where I've watched 20 minutes of jokes in an hour, but they're spread out so far. And people are like, that's the best show I've ever seen. Like, because you aren't expecting those jokes. Meanwhile, I do stand-up, and if I don't have a punchline every 30 seconds, people are like, what the fuck, man? Pick it up. Pick up the pace. <laughs> exactly. I didn't sit here. I did not spend $15 and two drink minimum to hear you not make me laugh for 30, exactly. 30 seconds. To, to let you build something <laughs> and, and let myself feel emotion. Right. Right. I didn't waste my time to actually feel something. Uh, you know, in front of my date. Yeah, this is a JJ. <laughs> so, uh, but you also, but but so what you're talking about also has to do with um, Paul Provenza and Troy Conrad. Uh, oh, set the, list. The set list. I did that once, and it was, oh, it was. I thought, oh yeah, I can handle this. First of all, it was tough because it was pretty much just other comics. It was like one of the smaller shows, but it was also tough because what I didn't realize is that. Doing well at setlist is about persona, not about material. Because once you have a defined persona, you can say anything in it and it will go to your perspective. It's like, what would this person say about this topic? Got it. And, you know, the same way that uh, uh, George Carlin, Jerry Seinfeld, and Richard Pryor all bought cars at some point in their life. You could write a joke from each of their perspectives because we know their material so well that we could write a joke from each of their perspectives about what that experience would be like for them. So if your persona is so well-defined, then you could write any joke in an instant. Right. Because it's just putting a character into a situation, you'd know how that character would respond.
Right. So your, but your, had you had that information, would you have approached it in a different way? Oh, very, very, very much different. What yeah. I should have done in the beginning is make my persona of onstage clear, which is that I don't like most people. And I, right? I seek to, I would love to. And the way I put it in conversation, I've never said it on stage, but I am, I call myself an, um, an optimistic realist uh, or a practical idealist. They both basically mean the same thing, which is the glass is one eighth full. I believe it's on its way to being full, but there's not much fucking in it right now. And so that is my character in life. That is a heightened version of that as my character on stage. And if I had made that clear ahead of time, then the material would have just written itself. It's interesting how, because coming from a, 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 a sketch directing, sketch writing, improv teaching background uh, or history, whatever, that everything you're saying to me is all about point of view. What is your particular point of view? Yes. Now, here's the thing. That's your point of view. And I, I don't think there's an artist out there that started out with them. They all started out with Carlin. I'll try Carlin. I'll try Pryor. I'll try Jackie Mason. I'll try these other Carlin people. Carlin started with Bruce. Right, of course. Yeah. And Carlin, Carlin perfected, at the end of his career, he perfected what Bruce wanted to do by standing up there and just going... You know, just talking, yeah, and talking about politics and railing, but but Lenny Bruce's railing was like, and then let's look through the transcripts, yeah, you know. But Carlin's like, this is Lenny what, Bruce also went crazy at the end. He went crazy at the end too, but but, yeah. but again, you know what I'm talking about, like the idea yeah. of I look at the I look at the end of Carlin's career and I look at the end of Lenny Bruce's career and I think, boy, Lenny Bruce did go off the fucking rails, but Carlin changed everything because Carlin went, you're here to see me. This is my point of view. I am going to just spew this shit. Do you know and about what Carlin did in Vegas? The best comedy story I've ever heard of. Carlin uh, took the stage in Vegas once. And like like long time ago or? Uh, I don't know when this was. Okay, fine. I would get, he was already a legend. Got it. He was already a legend at the time. Mm -hmm. And he took the stage in Vegas and he did for 10 minutes, no jokes, just, your government is fucking you. How can you not see that? How can you not see that? Just for 10 minutes of conspiracy theory and et cetera, et cetera, people are walking out. You used to be funny. What happened to you? I want my money back. All this shit. Finally, the people who are going to go have gone. The people who are going to stay are staying. And Carlin leans over and goes, now that we got those assholes out of the room, let's start the show. And just what a wonderfully just free thing to be able to do. And just, I mean, it takes all the people who went to go see him because they know he's famous, not because they respect his work, not because they like what he does, but simply because he's a name and gets them away from being annoying. And the only people left were the fans. Right. And that is beautiful. Right. Anyway, so uh, about yeah, about being derivative and finding voice. No, that was I was looking so, at it going. That's a lovely place to end, but I don't want to end there. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, don't uh, be sorry. You're sorry. I don't know ended. how long we're going. It doesn't so, matter. No, it doesn't matter. So the the, fi the finding voice the uh, the advice I give young comics is how often do you talk to them? So I'm sorry. Are, do you? Know, you yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very I, very often. Uh, I mean, so do people look at you as a mentor? I have. I get asked on Facebook probably you know, five, six times a week by different comics of, or, or wannabe comics who I just say, shut up and go do it. And then ask me a question. Um, 
often, partially because I've made my own way not within the system. Mm -hmm. I get it. And because of that, I think that speaks to a younger generation of comic. Mm -hmm. There's an older generation of comic who doesn't like me very much because they think I haven't paid my dues. Now, I did 13 fucking years on the road. I've paid my dues. I, I lived in my car for a year. I've paid those dues. I've done 3,000 gigs. Certainly paid those dues. I got famous on the internet. So that rubs because people you the wrong also, way. Because, but, but getting famous on the internet was also you going, I'm doing this. I can do this. Yeah. I'm going to do this. Well, I am doing this. But the YouTube thing happened beyond my control. I found a way to capitalize on it. Mm -hmm. But the YouTube thing happened simply because I posted a Heckler video and it went nuts. Yep. And I remember getting so excited that 30,000 people viewed it. And now that's what I get a day. And so it... You know, but I I changed it from the oh my god five thousand people a day this is amazing and I upped that by noticing it but the five thousand happened organically anyway so uh, the advice I give to them is philosophically I believe we only exist in the world as the sum total of how everybody sees us how we see ourselves guides our actions um, but it doesn't affect who we actually are. Now, the chasm between how we see ourselves and how everyone else sees us, that's delusion. However big that chasm is how delusional you are. <laughs> now, in a room, when there are 200 people watching you, you exist as the sum total of how the audience sees you. So if you really want to know who you are as a performer and you really want to know who you are as a person, what you do is you ask five people who know you very well and five people who don't know you very well, who might think they do, but, you know, acquaintances that consider you a friend but aren't really, um, ask them to describe you. And you find the words that repeat are the ones you are. And sometimes those conflict with each other. Like for me, I am a, I always need to be right, but I'm also a people pleaser. You can't be both. So I took the people pleaser part out of my act because I realized that you can't be too complex on stage. You don't have enough time. So now I'm the guy on stage who always needs to be right. And in fact, there was one point where someone in the crowd just, you know, interrupted me, said something that was wrong. I made fun of them and I said, thanks for incorrecting me. <laughs> and then they said, they said, oh, you always need to be right. And I said, well, yeah, because do you ever talk when you're not right? I don't talk unless I know what I'm going to say is correct. Why would you talk unless you knew you were right? Do you talk knowing full well that you're wrong? Because to me, that sounds like a waste of time. It also sounds like a really impossible thing to do. It, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, there are plenty of people who... Uh, but I feel like... Well, that, I guess they believe they're right. Exactly, yeah. and that's the whole thing, is if you believe... Because if you're doing... Imp when, you're, when you're improvising, I'll watch somebody and I'll just watch them totally bullshit, and I can tell they're totally bullshitting because the words aren't coming. Yeah, yeah. But if the words are coming, then that says to me, whether you're right or wrong, you believe you are. That Yeah, 100%. 100%. And... It's so I, I just think, you know, for for people, whether they are crafting a point of view as, you know, as a recurring character, as an actor, as a comic, whatever it is, I really think that little persona exercise, I think, help, helps a great deal because it, it allows you to and get your ego out of it. Let people insult you. That 
is so huge, the whole thing about the ego and getting the ego out of it, because I think that that if you, you will not do anything if you try to have a communion with you and your ego. It, yes. it is bloody impossible because the ego does not want you to break out of anything other than be here, be this, yeah. that's who you are, why are you shaking up your own tree, fucking knock it the fuck off, you stop it, stop it, stop it. Nothing good has ever become, nothing good has ever come between a union of inspiration and ego except maybe a book about inspiration and ego. Yeah. And even then, it's probably a shitty book. Exactly. Exactly. But the, like, you can, and you can own anything. You can, when you find out that this is who you are, you can own it in the way that, you know, I always used to be very nervous around girls and I put them on a pedestal and, you know, and just being completely unattractive. And then I realized that, like, confidence is important. And so there was one time where I was talking to a girl. This is obviously when I'm still single. I'm a very faithful man. And so I was talking to this girl, and she goes, you're pretty cocky, aren't you? And I said, oh, I'm sorry. Hold on. Wait. Let me, let me, I'll be, hold on. I'll be another guy. Is it okay if maybe we could maybe hang out sometime? And I started making fun of the alternative. And then she was like, okay, yeah, this is great, actually. This is, you're right. And so you can own anything. As long as you're not an asshole, as long as you don't treat people poorly, you know, I mean, don't be a dick. I think that's just good advice in general. Right. Um, but right. sorry, my brother's rabbi. And so, you know, as long as you, as long as you're a good person, you're not hurting anybody, you know, take fear out of your equation, take ego out of your equation and just own whatever you want to own and you'll enjoy your life a lot more. Let's end there. Thank cool. you so much. Thank you. That was really great. That was great. Thank you for listening to ADD Comedy. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on Dave, you can go to his website at www.davidrosowski.com or follow Dave on Twitter at drosowski.